American exceptionalism has always been a matter of faith. But let's look at it in the 21st century. Does it still make sense? Did it ever? What does it really do to the world? Hey, I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We've all heard the term American exceptionalism. It's been heartily embraced by both parties. And evangelists see America as a land promised for white Christians to rule. It's been thought of as an exceptional place, a country where everyone may be a part, unlike almost any other country. America is the place where oppressed people long to come and be free. Or at least that's the way it's been. And in terms of foreign policy, politicians on both sides agree America is the indispensable country. So what has that exceptionalism gotten us? One can understand how, after 1945, America the Victorious had reason to feel exceptional. We launched an amazing and protracted economic boom right after the war. And it looked obvious it was terrific. A large and solid middle class, well, at least for white people, and all the great new appliances to make life better, to free up our time to enjoy our ever-increasing purchases. There were no downsides. It was an ever-expanding universe. How could we have we imagined that there be no impact on the planet? It's amazing. Troubling is the fact that far too many on the political right still push for more growth in consumption. And uh, American exceptionalism, uber alles. A guest today, Avi Chomsky, takes a different perspective. In her article on Tom Dispatch, she says, the United States is exceptional, just not in the ways any of us should want. Because the fact is, the U.S. is just one chunk of real estate on this planet. What we do, the choices we make, are not without cost to the rest of the world. She suggests it's time to recognize and accept our exceptional responsibility. Avi Chomsky, thanks for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me back. Avi Chomsky is a Tom Dispatch regular professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Her latest book is Science Enough, 40 Critical Questions About Climate Justice. It's just about to be published. Well, again, thanks for being with us. In the 19th century, America beckoned with the exceptional prospect of limitless expansion onto virgin uninhabited land mm -hmm, for each rugged individual's economic advancement. That myth became our worldwide identity. How do you think that mindset led to the fact that today the adverse effects of that, that organization of the world? So, you know, it's really interesting the way you framed it when you were introducing this and connected to your first question where you said, America or the United States is a place where oppressed people want to come to be free. Right. Um, and now you have been talking about expansion onto the so-called empty land. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that perspective of American exceptionalism 
could also be turned upside down. That is for many people, people of color, that is, mm-hmm. it, the United States was a place where free people came to be oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we should think about that. And of course, um, yeah, you know, true. the land was not uninhabited. It yeah. was inhabited. Yes. So, but I think that's really connected to the larger issue that we're here to talk about today, um, which is the environmental impact right. of this particular expansionist, over-consuming, exploitative um, aspect of exceptionalism. And, you know, one of the things that I was looking at in the article and that I look at in my book is the absolutely outsized impact that the United States has had on CO2 emissions, um, both in a number of different ways. Um, But in particular, if we count them over time, because uh, you know, there's different ways that um, that we can measure CO2 emissions, and often we see like annual emissions by country. And if we look at the statistics of annual emissions by country, uh, we get the impression that China is the biggest culprit in CO2 emissions. But uh, looking by at annual emissions by country leaves out two really important things. One is the size of the country. Um, and the other is the fact that emissions don't go away at the end of the year. They are cumulative. So if we incorporate the size of the country and look at per capita emissions, suddenly we see that the United States, each person in the United States emits more than double what a person in China emits. So, you know, we can say, oh, Luxembourg has really low emissions. Well, that's because it has hardly any people. And China has really high emissions because that's a lot of people. But people in Luxembourg or in the United States um, actually emit a lot more than people in China do. Mm. Um, and then if we look cumulatively, um, U.S. emissions started going up way before China's did. Um, mm-hmm. There were some places in Europe, especially in Britain, that where they went up even earlier than the United States. But again, Britain is small, um, and uh, the United States is huge. So, um, yeah, we have- so over time, the United States looms way out beyond any other country as the largest emitter. Yeah, that's one uh, aspect of exceptionalism that uh, the politicians who are so proud of it and and boast of American exceptionalism don't want to look at. But we have to look at it. We have to look at it. You know, it's not uh, existing by itself without effects. There are significant effects. And it seems that what happened after America's victory in the Second World War it, it did nothing to detract from that excited belief of a limitless world we can and are exceptionally obligated to control. There was that belief, and many people still believe that. Well-respected diplomat George Kennan, whom I like quite a bit, actually, in general, he interesting guy, complicated. He had, he had some words about applying this outlook to America's new role in the world. Tell us about that, please, and, and what, it, what he was talking about and what it has brought to us. So I actually would love to quote for you sure. um, the uh, the quote from Kennan that I cite in the article, um, yes, and please. it's a really well-known citation. Um, but he said, uh, we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. 
In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task for the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. Mm. So, you know, the idea that the United States must police the world Mm -hmm. um, is really related to the idea that the United States needs to keep control of the world's resources and um, to maintain our our position as the largest consumer of the world's resources. And I think Kennan um, implicitly there is recognizing that the world's resources are finite and that if we are using them, that means somebody else is not going mm-hmm. to be able to use them. And, you know, back in 1948, I don't think people realized the, the concept of the atmospheric commons, that is that the, the amount of CO2 that we could emit without destroying the ability of humans to survive on the planet was also finite. Um, but but Kennan was recognizing that the resources are finite. Um, but yet another resource is the atmosphere, and we are using up the atmosphere just as we're using up the, the, the minerals and, um, yes. and petroleum. Uh, we're using up the atmosphere that, that we have used far more than our share of the atmospheric commons through what what we have emitted. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's a real connection there, and this is kind of what I was getting at at the beginning, that, you know, is, it, is the United States a place where oppressed people come to be free or where free people come to be oppressed? Um, that, that the exploitation of humans and the exploitation of the environment and the military Terrorization yes. necessary to maintain those exploitations. Um, they're all connected. Yeah, it does really seem that way. And that my impression from what Kenan was saying is that, uh, hey, it's ours. You know, we we get to use this stuff as we see fit. We don't, you know, as you say, there was no recognition of the atmospheric commons, that uh, it's important that we, the United States, keep using it. And, uh, hey, tough luck for everybody else. Is that a, a fair interpretation of what he was saying? Um, that sounds exactly like what he was saying yeah. to me. <laughs> um, and not just that we don't care, but we need to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. And uh-huh. you know what that is? That's the arms race. <laughs> Yeah, and at some point during this discussion, we will certainly get to the military's uh, contribution to uh, <laughs> incredible pollution that they have put out there. Because they're—I don't know—we'll get—we'll get to that. But one of the basic characteristics of imperial nations, and some people still don't recognize that we are an imperial nation, uh, but there's the understanding by those powers that they are bringing superior ways to the lesser nations. Trump had a word for that. I won't use it. Examples of this belief in unlimited expansion as an unquestioned good runs from the settlers, uh, civilizing the savages of North America through our consistent policy of, as you had put it in our last discussion, extraction and exploitation in Central America. We make use of them. We make use of them for our higher purposes and ignore the damage we cause. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that mindset has, uh, that's pervaded our attitude towards new stuff. They generate the profits, 
uh, and it's kept the economy humming nicely for the top few percent. They generate this without a thought to the trash and pollution, which are part of the deal. They are part of the deal. Is there a pattern between our imperialistic processes and putting blinders on regarding the greater effects on the rest of the world? Is it, is it what we're talking about just part of the very nature of empire? Um, it's certainly part of the very nature of European expansion. Um, since, say, 1492, you mm. know, the French called it the Mission Civilisatrice, um, the civilizing mission. Um, the uh, expansion of Christian missionaries bringing the word of the one true God mm -hmm. to uh, heathens around the world, and um, Europeans in trying to impose their uh, political domination, supposedly for the benefit of, of people who didn't understand how they were supposed to be organizing their societies and living and organizing their economies. Um, I think that is very much um, that those attitudes, which are, you know, could be also defined very simply as racism. Yeah. Um, those racist attitudes are still very deeply built into um, European and U.S. dominant ways of thinking. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking about that collection of, of quotes from politicians and news commentators about uh, how, about the war in Ukraine. Um, I don't know if you saw the article in The Guardian that, that pulled some of these together, um, but saying things like, uh, to quote CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charles Dagata, um, Ukrainian cities aren't places with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan, that has, have seen conflict raging for decades. Oh, wow. This is a relatively civilized, relatively <gasps> European, I have to choose those words carefully too, city, one where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it isn't, that it's going to happen. It's like, what? Like you would hope that that kind of destruction is going to happen in non-European places, but we'll get, we'll be upset if it happens in a European mm. city. Um, so we, we don't see the effects of this unlimited expansion. And that is pretty amazing about, I mean, I, how could one not notice all the uh, incredible news with question mark coverage there is of Ukraine? largely because they look like us. Well, I, so I would say it's actually, um, there's two factors that are very closely intertwined here. Um, and, you know, that they look like us is definitely one of the two factors, but it doesn't stand alone. Um, and, you know, some some of these quotes, uh, commentators have even said things like this. We're talking about Europeans living in cars that look like ours. It's not only that... They look like us. They are blonde and blue-eyed. Yes. Um, blue people, European people with blue eyes and blonde hair. But it's also that they have cars that look like ours. <laughs> so, so maybe I would say it's even a three-part. So part of it is they look like us, or at least the news commentators who are speaking. Um, cars that look like ours. But also there's the geopolitics of it. That is that Russia is an official enemy. So... Um, highlighting the suffering of people in Ukraine 
fits the dominant narrative, whereas Iraq, for example, was an official enemy. So when the United States is attacking Iraq, it's not just maybe that they don't, quote, look like us or have blonde hair and blue eyes um, or even drive cars like ours, uh, which, of course, there were many cars like ours in Iraq before we (laughs) invaded, um, but that the official narrative is that we are the good guys and the Iraqis are the bad guys, so we don't care what happens to them. Uh-huh. Whereas here, the Ukrainians are the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys. So so it uh, there's a political economy to deserving and undeserving victims, as well as a, a racist component. And all this fits in with uh, the idea that we are the best. We are exceptional. And that, uh, you know, we have greater value than they do, which I find appalling, but it's been how we've operated for a long time and the pollution that naturally comes with this exploitation and uh, uh, extraction from the land without even thinking about the waste that comes from it. Bert Cohen here, if you just tuned in, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Avi Chomsky, uh, who's written an article, The United States is Exceptional, just not in the ways any of us should want. Um, so, how, and, and people want more stuff. You know, let's face it, people want more stuff, newer and better. And, you know, ever since I grew up, you know, new and improved, everything new and improved, and just throw out the old stuff. The new stuff is better. Uh, so how, more stuff is wealth. How is our definition of wealth feeding and the distribution thereof, feeding the degrading of the planet. Well, um, so, you know, you ask about our definition of wealth, um, and I would maybe um, shift that a little bit and say, how is our definition of the good life? Uh-huh. Okay, that's better. You're right. Um, because, like, wealth, I, I think, um, kind of automatically refers to material yeah. wealth. Um, and I would also point out, if we're going to talk about wealth, consumption, material wealth, um, that's also not equally divided in the United States. That is, the top 10% of the population in the United States uses something like 50, uh, creates something like 50% of the emissions from the United States, as mm. opposed to the mm. bottom 90%. And the bottom 10% um, produces hardly any. So, you know, the country is wealthy, but the wealth inside the country is not equally divided, and the um, consumption and creation of emissions is also not equally divided. Um, So, so, you know, you described people in the United States as like, we always want newer and better. But I would say that we are... um, live in a society that is structured to manipulate us to keep buying useless junk um, uh, in order for the rich to keep getting richer. That is, it's really the corporate elite who are profiting from the system and who like own Facebook and Microsoft and um, are constantly bombarding us with advertisements, but not just manipulating our minds, but also manipulating our environment. And, you know, let's just stop to look at the um, question of transportation mm-hmm. for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many people 
have a car and drive everywhere, not because they actually actively want to have a car and drive everywhere, but because they have no other option. Um, Whereas if you look at a place like Tokyo, for example, people live quite well and many of them don't have cars and don't see any need to have a car because they have excellent accessible public transportation to take them everywhere they want to go. So you know, I, I would say that they manipulate our minds, but they also manipulate our environment um, to to force us into certain ways of thinking and certain ways of mm-hmm. behaving and make those seem so natural to us that we mm-hmm. can't even imagine living any other way. But, you know, I don't think it's like inherent in us that we always want more stuff. Right. And, you know, a lot of people feel like they're drowning in stuff. Yes. A lot of people feel like they're drowning in debt at the same time that they're drowning in stuff. Um, And a lot of what we really need to live a good life are exactly the things that people get indebted for. Um, They Mm. need housing. They need medical care. They need education. They need child care. Um, You know, those are the kinds of things that I think if people really sat down and thought about it um, are what people need for a good life. And our society doesn't make those things easy to get. And that also puts us on this treadmill of we have to keep working, we have to keep earning, we have to keep, and, and makes it impossible for us to sort of think outside the box because we're just like barely treading water and um, trying to stay on top of it. And the stresses that come from from all these ways that our society is organized, um, including the pollution that we are exposed to, but, but you know the traffic jam, yes. the uh, the stresses of debt, the difficulty in finding childcare, the um, hopelessness about old age and how we're going to survive in old age and who's going to take care of us. The, you know, so many uh, aspects of insecurity in our lives that prevent us from thinking about, from, from being able to um, access what we might think if we were really to sit back and think about it, a good life might consist of. Yeah, we're sold what uh, supposed to be a good life, new and improved, more and better. But you're right. I mean, uh, I think, you know, if you were to ask anybody, they'd agree. Housing, health care, child care, education, these things are essential. And elder lot, care. Elder care. People do. Medical care. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and people do without that while they have more stuff that's been so profitable for the big corporations that have had so much political power, let's face it, you know, since uh, World War II and uh just just keep on making stuff without thinking about, I mean, not only does it not really bring a good life, because as you say, people are on a treadmill. Uh, if I get in traffic, I'm thinking people are going to work, spending a ton of time in these traffic jams on the so-called highways, and it's largely to pay off their cars, and they need their cars <laughs> to get to work. It's it's an awful treadmill. Ah, so we're talking about uh, American exceptionalism, and uh, the, the the right wing talks about freedom, and we all, 
you know, this is the United States. We treasure freedom. It's something we all believe in, which amazed me that uh, there were uh, Trumpists carrying Trump flags and American flags, which are really two of the opposite things about, uh, you know, freedom, democracy versus authoritarianism. But somehow, I don't know, people get uh, manipulated. And uh, Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, I think around the world, many people actually associate the American flag with authoritarianism, because what kinds of governments have we imposed That's upon true. the rest of the world and have we supported and do we pour military aid into around the world? And I mean, this is really characteristic of empire. Um, just going back to the earlier part of our conversation, that is, uh, you know, the European countries in the United States might think that democracy is really good and important at home, but they do yeah. not ever advocate democracy for their colonies. No, and it's been so, one of the, I think, definitions of freedom for the people on the right is freedom for the big corporations to do whatever the heck they want anywhere in the world, you know, and they, if they need a, a, a right-wing, authoritarian, fascistic, uh, brutal government in these places like El Salvador, Vietnam, whatever, yeah, so what? They don't want any regulations at all, and that's what freedom means to them. Never mind everybody else, but that's a real divider within society, you know, the people with the wealth and power versus everybody else. And the rest of the world, as you say, they're no strangers to it. We do things that we can't see, you know, part the, the, the trash and the pollution and the waste that, that, you know, comes with consuming the most we, we don't want to see that, and that's uh, somewhat exceptional, I guess. And, you know, I would say that, you know, if you think about the, the entire productive and consumption, production and consumption complex, like it starts with extraction of resources. Um, so, you know, you mentioned one stage in that, which is the waste, and obviously CO2 emissions are one example, yeah. um, and, and greenhouse gas emissions, not just CO2, but other greenhouse gas emissions as well. Um, are part of the waste moment in the productive cycle. But it really starts with extraction, yes. um, production, consumption, and then, and there is um, trash, as you put it, or emissions um, produced at every moment of that. Like in, or, in order for extraction to take place, even prior to extraction, usually comes deforestation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also exploitation of people uh, in every stage because, um, you know, one of the the um, things that got me on the path to writing this book has been in my involvement over the last 15 years or so with communities affected by coal mining in Colombia, South yeah. America. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I knew that coal was bad because it's bad when you burn it. But I, before um, getting involved with this issue, I really had no idea what coal was like when you extract it. Like I might have read a couple of books about 19th century coal mines, but what what's coal like where it's when it's being extracted now? Well, um, in Colombia, coal is being extract, extracted on indigenous land, on peasant land, and the the magnitude of these operations. And the um, industrial pollution that and displacement and destruction of traditional lifestyles, deforestation, 
um, loss of human life, loss of animal life, loss of traditional cultures um, that goes on just to get the coal out of the ground, um, you know, before we even get to burning it. And of course, the emissions that are caused because these mines are are highly industrialized operations. So, so there's emissions and there's exploitation of the planet and of humans and there's waste at every step of the process. And we just don't want to look at that. And uh, you know, we we want the products, we want the heat, you know, and and the wood products, but we don't think about you know. It's just it's something out of sight, out of mind, but it is part of the process. And I guess that is part of exceptionalism is that, you know, we feel like, well, we don't have to look at that, but you brought up coal, obviously got a lot of problems. And I'm sure you've noticed the recent activity in recent years of proponents of nuclear energy claiming it's part of a green solution. I got to tell you, I, before you answer it, I saw a video of some uh, indigenous American, you know, Native American kids sliding on uh, a big mountain of uh, radioactive tailings, like sand. Mm-hmm. What about this? You know, it's it's not part of the green solution, and and you know, it's once again a big, uh, powerful, uh, centralized, uh, uh, you know, in industry, the coal and large centralized facilities, uh, and yet they claim to be part of the green solution. But how do they fit into this uh, this picture that we're talking about? The real price of nuclear energy. Well, of course, nuclear energy, like every form of energy, and you know, one of the things I argue in my book is that there really is no form of clean energy. That's a euphemism. Mm. Um, mm. There are different environmental impacts, and right now, the environmental impact of fossil fuels is has is bringing us to a tipping point on the planet where that has to be our priority. Is um, absolutely halting the use of fossil fuels. Um, immediately, not in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, but like right now. Um, but every form of energy has environmental costs. And the long-term goal that we need to think about is figuring out how to, how to create um, what some scholars call a good life for all within planetary boundaries. Ah. That is, we need energy, Um, but people like us, people like this country, need a lot less energy than we currently use, Um, and that the energy resources, whether they're going to be developed through solar, through wind, um, which, as I said, also have environmental impacts, although do not cause the kind of emissions that the use of fossil fuels cause, um, we're going to need to find ways to use those to sustain in over-consuming places like the United States, much lower levels of energy use overall. Um, in terms of nuclear, obviously, uh, there's a lot of toxic stages in the production of nuclear energy, from the extraction of uranium to the um, running of the plants to the... Um, to the disposal of nuclear waste um, after the energy is produced. And those are also extremely toxic and extremely dangerous. And much of that extractive process uses fossil fuels. 
Yes. So, um, and, and that's true of really pretty much every form of energy, like the windmills, the solar panels, like those all have to be, you know, resources have to be extracted from the earth and they have to be processed industrially um, in order to make those. Um, and then there's the question of batteries and storage, which is a whole other set of extractive um, toxic yeah. um, processes, you know, extracting minerals from the earth, deforestation, displacement of people, um, poisoning of environments. Um, but so I do not think that nuclear energy is the solution. Right. Um, and we don't have a solution right. to the toxic waste created um in the entire process of, of producing nuclear energy. At the same time, though, so, you know, I kind of cut my political teeth protesting nuclear power plants in California back in the 1970s. Um, but I, at the same time, I think that right now our priority has to be fossil fuels. Um, so I don't advocate building out more nuclear energy production because... There's also the problem that once you've invested in the infrastructure, you, uh, you're kind of stuck with using it. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think decommissioning nuclear power plants is our top priority right now. No, not right now. That, that, that's for sure. We have other higher uh, things that we must get to right away. And if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Avi Chomsky, who's got a new book out, uh, soon to be out, Is Science Enough? 40 Critical Questions About Climate Justice. And when, when do we expect that book out? That is coming out April 5th, so less than ah, a week now. Oh, my goodness. And uh, you're probably some people are listening uh, after it's out so that you can look for it. Again, it's called uh, Is Science Enough? 40 Critical Questions About Climate Justice. And what about, you know, there's, there's the Paris Agreement. Uh, the former guy whose name, you know, we all don't want to hear, took, uh, took the U.S. out of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Biden supports the agreement. But the degradation of the planet is, is severe. What are the real effects of the Paris document? How far does that go to, uh, to kind of cutting back on the, uh, Ameri the exceptional use of, of power that uh, the United States is currently doing, use of uh, you know, limited resources? Well, there's a couple of weaknesses in the Paris Agreement that have prevented it from really achieving um, what a lot of the um, scientific community um, believed in 2015 and continues to believe today, in fact, believed as far back as the 1980s, um, actually needed to be done. Um, and that has a lot to do with the power of the high-consuming countries that want to make sure that their high consumption isn't really challenged. So, um, okay, two big weaknesses that I would look at. One is NDCs, nationally determined commitments. That is, there's actually no obligations under the Paris Agreement. What every country commits to is to developing its own uh its own decision about how much it's going to reduce its fossil fuel use or its emissions. So, you know, that puts, it's kind of like the fox guarding the hen house. Um, 
you know, countries do not have to abide by any international rules. Every country gets to make its own rules. And then second, once it's made its commitments, well, there's no enforcement of those commitments, but also it gets to make its own plan for how it's going to achieve the reductions that it's committed to. So um, there's not a whole lot of enforcement capacity in the Paris Agreement, and that's probably the biggest weakness. Um, the countries get to decide their own goals and then make their own plans, and then that there's no enforcement. So, you know, there's been some really interesting work done um, trying to look at how much do we actually need to reduce emissions if we want to keep within the goals that were set by the Paris Agreement, which were preferably keeping emissions down to uh, a, a, an amount consistent with no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade mm. uh, temperature rise. Um, at the absolute um, outside was two degrees, but preferably well below two degrees and preferably below 1.5 degrees. Um, the gap between that goal and the actual pledges and targets set by the countries. So if you, and then the gap between the pledges and targets set by the countries and the actual plans that they have put into place. <laughs> so, you know, the goal is 1.5 degrees. Um, but the implementation... The current pledges and targets set by the countries would bring us to 2.6 degrees. Mm. And the current policies would bring us to at least three degrees. That's projected warming by 2100 by Climate Action Tracker. So I think that the global commitments are really important, but they're nowhere near enough. They're so far from enough. And, you know, the most recent report that just came out um, last, at the end of last month, at the end of February, um, is really, really dire in terms of, first of all, the, um, the need to keep it to 1.5 degrees rather than 2 degrees is much more urgent than uh -huh. we had previously right. understood. And secondly, it's already too late to keep it to 1.5 degrees. That is, if we wanted to keep it to 1.5, we're already at like 1.2. Even if we were to completely stop using all fossil fuels today, mm -hmm. we would go above 1.5. Um, so the urgency with which we need to address this just is so distant from the um, actual decisions and policies that are being implemented. And, you know, it, it, I, I know that, you know, for many years and, and in the past, uh, you know, you, you burn stuff, you, the stuff that comes out of the tailpipe, eh, it goes, there's so much, so much air out there. And is it, I don't really know about this stuff. Is it that carbon emissions, is it locked in? Does it somehow uh, naturally degrade? I mean, does it just keep building and building and building, and that's just what it is? Um, well, uh, it depends on which greenhouse gases you're talking about. Uh -huh. um, CO2 lasts for, I believe, um, at least 100 years. Oh, Methane. Lovely. Um, actually is much more potent in terms of its warming, its, its impact on global warming. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the statistics we look at don't even include methane. 
Um, and part of, and even those that try to measure methane miss a lot of it because like CO2 emissions are much easier to measure by, because we know how much is emitted by the burning of fossil fuels and by other activities. Um, and it's also, but, um, but methane emissions, a lot of it is accidental. Um, it comes right. from animal agriculture. It comes right. from leaks. So, so, so we don't, we, we don't measure it in any way near as effectively, but so methane degrades much more quickly. Ah. So, um, it's, it's lifespan in the atmosphere is only about 20 years, but in those 20 years, its impact is so much more than that of CO2 that it's actually even more urgent to bring down methane emissions, um, even though it's also a smaller portion of our total emissions and our, and our total contribution to, um, to atmospheric CO2 and warming. Um, and it doesn't really go away that quickly, if at all. So it does not go away that quickly at all. And and so it's been. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why, even if we were to stop right. emitting today, um, what's there is still going to be having an impact for quite a while in the future. Oh, great! <laughs> um, and of course, there's no way we could stop emitting 100 percent today, no, even of course not. because you know we think about. Um, you know, energy production and transportation are the two largest contributors um, to emissions. But, uh, yeah, energy production and transportation. But agriculture is also a huge contributor. So, like, we're not going to stop agriculture, right? Right. Um, and we need transportation. Depending where but, you... but there can be other modes of transportation, Lord knows. I mean, the... the uh, uh, trucking lobby back in, I think it was the early 1950s, uh, made sure that the government spent money on highways and not trains. And we're still paying a price for that today. But there could be all kinds of solar power. The, the could-bes are there. The possibilities, you know, we don't have to uh, give up on everything. And, and I think people are thinking, you know, well, we got to keep on polluting. We have to, you know, if, if we like our lifestyle, uh, we wouldn't... Uh, how radical would it be to do what we need to do? I think it, my sense is it'd be pretty radical, and people are, are frightened of that. Your res response to that? Well, I do think it would be pretty radical. But anybody who's lived practically anywhere else in the world knows that, um, that in many, many, many parts of the world, people live in ways that are kind of radically different from how we live here. Um, and, you know, there are developed industrialized countries with what we would call a very high standard of living, places like, you know, Japan or Spain, um, where people emit less than half of what we emit here. Mm. Um, they still emit too much. Right. Um, they're still over their fair share. And I think the fair share is a really important concept uh -huh. um, that, that different climate organizations use that in order to stay within 1.5 degrees, the fair share that each person on the planet really has the right to emit is 1.6 tons a year. So, you know, we emit about 17 um, Japan, people emit about eight. In Spain, people emit about five. Um, so, but I think that what it really comes down to is what we were talking about before is like, yes, things would need to change. Um, but does that mean things would get worse? 
maybe we could conceive of the change as things getting better. That is, if our economy were geared towards actually fulfilling human needs rather than lining the pockets of big corporations, um, we could devote a lot more of our economy, mm. our work, and our so-called consumption um, to uh, not just to polluting the planet, but to educating people and taking care of children and healthcare yes. and, yes. Uh, you know, public transit. Um, so, you know, you say people are afraid of change, but um, I think people are afraid of of people feel insecure and people are afraid of being even more yes, insecure. Yes. But what I'm arguing is that the kinds of economic changes we need to make would actually make people more secure. Good point. And I, I, I do believe that, that uh, most people would like our priorities to be fulfilling human needs so that we can all live, you know, a decent life. Uh, but the politicians are, afraid. I think they're more afraid of, of alienating their big corporate funders. And so they're behind it. People have, we do, there are a lot of us, I think, who do agree to that, we, we, you know, Republican and Democrat. Yeah, we'd like, and we, and we recognize that, you know, it affects crime for that matter. If people don't have their human needs uh, met and can't do it, what if they have nothing, they have nothing to lose, as Bob Dylan said. So there are all kinds of possibilities for uh, good change, and I, I do believe there's some hunger for that. Then again, I've always been uh, an optimist. And uh, y you mentioned uh, something called degrowth. What is degrowth mm -hmm. thinking all about? Tell us about degrowth. So, you know, I've sort of been talking about it without using the word, huh? but um, degrowth economics argues that instead of measuring the economy by GDP, and uh, developing economic policies that will help us increase our GDP, which basically means help us increase our production and consumption, which basically means help us increase pollution. Um, we should measure an economy, and I mean, it's not necessarily a question of measuring, but we should prioritize in economic decision-making human needs rather than GDP. Rather than measuring how much we produce and consume, we should focus on what are the collectively agreed upon um, needs that we should aim our labor towards towards fulfilling. Um, so, I think the people. So, so you know, in in classical and neoclassical and orthodox and heterodox and you know, pretty much every kind of economic thinking is all based on what's good for the economy is to increase production and consumption. Uh. And degrowth says no, that, um, that, and, and that, that mm. what, what economists should be doing is working on how to manage a transition that, uh, that puts human needs and social justice at its center instead of one that puts increasing profits at its center. And I would think we are at sort of an exciting point in that for uh, managing a transition. This, you know, the, the energy is building. It does take a while to make political change, as we know. 
but uh, I, th I think the energy is, is starting to be there. Heck, even the uh, you know the ads on TV—they're talking about you know maybe greenwashing, but at least there's they feel like they need to appeal to that. So it's it's happening, I think. And well, you know, um, the most recent IPCC report. And what is IPCC? Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thank you. Um, which came out at the end of February, um, talked about degrowth as an option for the very first time. And since the um, this is the sixth um, assessment report that uh, that the IPCC has put out, and the fifth one came out maybe five years ago or something. But since then, um, there's been a lot of work from the degrowth school arguing that the only way we are going to get anywhere near the kind of change we need is like, that previous IPCC reports had been looking primarily or exclusively on technological solutions. And degrowth argues that, no, we need oh. social change solutions. And, um, and this is the first report um, since, since 1990 when the first one came out. Um, this is the first time that the IPCC has uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about the kinds of socioeconomic change we need to have and actually using the word and, and making reference to degrowth scholarship to, to talk about how can we possibly um, achieve the goals that we have to achieve. Yeah, it's not going to be easy, but it can be done, and and it's a good thing that's being addressed like that through, uh, organ, you know, uh, organizations like that. And I I've wondered about uh, you know with with all the new or increased interest in in climate change, uh, the car makers have got to be really happy to have a new way to market their products, electric cars, and mm -hmm. what that does is put the solution on individuals. You know, rugged individualism, I suppose. But, but does this mindset of that, you know, just get a new electric car, does that not kind of reinforce that which we really need to change? Absolutely. Um, and you, you know, you said it puts the solution on individuals. I would say it puts the false solution on yeah, individuals exactly. and allows individuals to um, lull themselves by saying, <laughs> oh, well, if I buy this... Instead of that, um, but so, you know, some vehicular transportation is going to be necessary. So, you know, electric buses, those are really important, yep. but individual cars, um, the use of individual cars has to go way, way down. Yes. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly how far it has right. to go down, but way, way down. Um, and uh, so, you know, to build an electric car requires actually more extraction of resources uh. than a traditional car. Um, of course, there's all those traditional cars, gas gasoline-powered cars that people are going to be throwing out and uh. creating more waste in yes. order to buy their electric cars. Uh -huh. um, and the the storage of energy, so and plus the electricity has to be produced somewhere. And right now, the majority of our, the vast majority of our energy in this country is produced by fossil fuels. Yes. So um, you know, the it's not being burned inside the car, and the pollution isn't coming out the tailpipe. It's being burned in a <laughs> in a power plant, and the pollution is coming out of the smokestack. 
But at least it's making the, the car companies uh, wealthy again. So we should... Um, <laughs> and there's the problem of storage of batteries. And that's one of the, the um, serious environmental impacts of solar and wind power is that they're intermittent. They have to be stored. Uh, um, and, and the batteries... Uh, you know, supposedly battery technology is improving, but mm. the batteries are also made out of toxic minerals extracted from the earth yes. um, that require huge multinational mining um, operations mm. like to extract lithium, um, yes. nickel. Uh, so, you know, the more we're talking about producing, we need to be talking about ways of producing less, not ways of producing and using more. Indeed, even if it's looking slightly greener. And one important topic I wanted to make sure we got to is our carbon debt. Yes, we need to reduce our energy consumption. We also need to pay our carbon debt. So that that kind of looks like, you know, getting away from American exceptionalism. Uh, what is our our carbon debt to the world? Don't we, you know, generally assume we have no debt to the world? Tell us about that. So the carbon debt concept comes from this idea of a carbon budget. Um, how much CO two can the atmosphere take uh, without catastrophic change? Um, to the climate, and we're actually getting close to there. <laughs> um, I mean, many catastrophic effects we're already beginning to feel, but we're going to be feeling a lot more over the next five or ten years. Yes. Um, so, this this carbon debt that the price that they have to pay for our overconsumption. How can we structure that? And I, what? How much, you know? So if you, if you look at the cumulative emissions country by country, you see that the United States has already far exceeded its fair share of oh. access to the atmospheric commons yes. um, because of what we have emitted since 1850, especially since 1950, but since, since our emissions started going up in 1850. So we owe a carbon debt to the world, um, and that means that we need to reduce our emissions dramatically and quickly and the U.S. Climate Action Network has estimated that in realistic terms, um, probably the most we can manage in terms of emissions reduction would be 70 percent by 2030. So that is significantly more than the U.S. Paris commitment um, and significantly more, um, even more significantly more than what uh, – and, you know, Biden's almost stopped talking about our targets or our goals or how we're going to reach them. Um, especially now that this war is going on and it's all about, oh, how can we produce more fossil fuels now <laughs> to make, uh, to, you know, to supply Europe and to keep the gas prices down. So, you uh, know, he's, know, he's really changed his tune. But even that amount of reduction, 70% by 2030, that's the most, you know, just thinking realistically about how much could we, if we really decided to uh, put our minds to it, um, reduce uh, that we also owe a cash debt yes. to the rest of the world um, to repay for what we have already overused. So um, U.S. Climate Action Network calculated the um, the cash equivalent as being 125% of our current annual emissions, um, that we need to pay that in cash to energy-poor nations in uh technical and financial support mm -hmm. to um, meet their energy needs um, and make up for what we have already overused. It's a big 
big uh, step, you know, thing to do. It's a big problem, but there are solutions, and I think uh, there's a lot that can be learned. We could discuss a lot more. And your new book is Is Science Enough? 40 Critical Questions About Climate Justice. It's not out yet. I haven't read it yet. But uh, I imagine it offers a lot to this discussion. So that yes, will, I think it does. That will be out soon. Well, uh, this is a side of American exceptionalism that we haven't wanted to look at. We wanted to believe we could keep on doing it, but we can't keep on doing it. We just can't. We have to make some decisions. I think the people are ahead of the politicians, as usual. And uh, there's just so much more to do, but there's so many possibilities. We can be optimistic. Avi Chomsky, thank you so much for being with us once again on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. And I, I get a little bit of sense of optimism that maybe we can do it. Maybe? Possibly? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. All right. Thank you. This is an open letter from you and me together. Tomorrow's in our hands now. Find the words that matter, say them out loud. I'll make it better somehow. A tiny bloom on board Who'd have thought the ground was tender Could be so fragile Heaven's poetry is 